1: Welcome to the Age of Napoleon, episode 14, The People's Army. Thanks for joining me. This episode, we'll be taking a step back from Napoleon's story to look at the broader picture, at what was going on on the mainland while Napoleon was playing Gracchus in Corsica. In France, politics continued to drift in a more radical direction, The new government was plagued by instability and struggled to address the country's problems, just as the old government had. In international affairs, the rest of Europe finally woke up to the significance of the events in France and sought to take advantage. Most importantly, the French military began a radical transformation. These changes would be just as dramatic as the changes to the French political system, And their results would shock the world and transform warfare forever. But first, politics. I don't want to get too bogged down in this area. French revolutionary politics were complicated. Things were constantly in flux, there were lots of players, and there was always something happening. It's all pretty fascinating, but it's still mostly in the background of our story. Napoleon followed these events closely, and they had an impact on his life. But as I said last time, his personal political horizons had not really expanded much beyond Corsica. We last talked about the general political atmosphere in France in episode 8, Fracture. When we left off, the situation was explosive. Conditions were ripe for cataclysmic social conflict. The whole country seemed to be just waiting for the spark. The economy had stabilized slightly since the desperate days of 1789, but it was still in terrible shape the new government had made some important strides but there was still starvation and food insecurity people don't really care about abstract economic reform when they're worried where their next meal will come from the political crisis we discussed in episode 8 hadn't gotten better either the country was polarized between supporters and opponents of the revolution And within the revolutionary camp, between bourgeois moderates and radicals who harnessed working class anger. People were frustrated by the government's inability to address the country's problems, and the more frustrated they were, the more they were willing to entertain radical solutions. Then, in April of 1792, the government added a whole new crisis to its list of headaches by declaring war on Austria. Everyone had been expecting this for some time. The two governments had been rattling their sabers at each other for over a year. The Austrians had amassed a huge army on the French border and were helping French émigrés form counter-revolutionary military units on Austrian soil. Austrian Emperor Leopold II had publicly denounced the revolution and called for a change of government nearly a year before war broke out. Leopold's brother-in-law, King Louis, publicly denounced Austria and supported the war. But we know from his secret correspondence that he only did so because he believed France would lose and the victorious Austrians would restore him to his former powers. In fact, he'd been begging Leopold to invade for over a year. War was not unexpected, but nonetheless, the French army was woefully unprepared. You are probably sick of hearing me say it now, but it bears repeating. More than half of the pre revolutionary French officer corps had left the army. And this was actually an even worse problem than it sounds, because those officers who stayed were disproportionately very junior. There were still a decent number of lieutenants and captains left, but few colonels and hardly any generals. France hadn't fought in a major war since the American War of Independence over a decade ago. Hardly any officers had combat experience. The good news for the French was that Austria couldn't bring her full might into the war. Believe it or not, in 1792, the French Revolution was actually a secondary concern for most of the major powers. Their attention was focused eastward. Poland was disintegrating. Its weak central government was in crisis, incapable of controlling its own territory. This created a massive power vacuum in Eastern Europe. For the great powers on Poland's borders, Prussia, Austria, and Russia, this represented both danger and opportunity. All three stepped into the vacuum to seize Polish territory, both for their own aggrandizement and to make sure it wasn't gobbled up by a rival power first. This has gone down in history as the second partition of Poland. There wasn't really any fighting, but it was a fluid, volatile situation that could easily have devolved into war, so all three of the Eastern European powers stationed large numbers of troops in their new Polish territories, to be ready in case their rivals made a move, and to impose their authority on the Poles. It seems crazy in hindsight, but these events in Poland were generally considered to be the most important geopolitical events in Europe. What was happening in France was unprecedented. We know it turned out to be one of the most important events in history, but it was hard for people at the time to wrap their heads around it. Even the unstable revolutionary French government, with its weakened army, might have stood a chance with Austria dividing its forces between East and West. The bad news for the French was that Austria would not be their only enemy. King Frederick William II of Prussia, successor to Frederick the Great, was also deeply concerned by the events of the revolution, so concerned that the Austrians had managed to convince him to sign an anti-French alliance. Prussia and Austria had been bitter rivals for most of the 18th century, but in early 1792, Frederick William entered the war against France. Within a few months, they were joined by Spain, Portugal, and the Dutch Republic, and Piedmont and Naples, the two biggest Italian states. And of course, as Holy Roman Emperor, Leopold II of Austria took all the small states of Germany to war as well. Ironically, Great Britain, France's greatest geopolitical rival, was the last to join in. But once they did, it would be ten years before Britain and France were at peace again. When a number of countries band together like this to take down a single enemy, the alliance is usually referred to as a coalition which is how this war came to be called the War of the First Coalition. There will be six more by the time we're done. France was at war with most of Western Europe, practically surrounded with hostile forces on every border and across the English Channel to the north. But the situation might not have been quite as bad as it looks on paper. France's enemies were divided. Just on a practical level, it could take months to communicate between the coalition capitals, and their troops and officers spoke different languages and were trained and led differently. But they were also philosophically divided. They had no common purpose beyond hostility to France. Each country entered the war with its own foreign policy objectives. Many of these so-called allies were almost as wary of each other as they were of France. For instance, Austria and Prussia were cooperating in Western Europe, but they still saw themselves as rivals in Eastern Europe and in Germany. Both sides framed the War of the First Coalition as an ideological struggle between revolution and tradition. But if we want to understand what's going on here, we shouldn't take them at their word. Sure, the coalition didn't like the revolution and didn't want it to spread, but it's pretty rare for a leader to take his or her country to war on a matter of pure principle. Remember, we're talking about an era in which war was incredibly expensive, and armies were viewed as precious, exhaustible resources. Like all wars, the War of the First Coalition was largely about geopolitics. The countries in the coalition had dreamed of taking down France since the days of Louis XIV. All of Western Europe felt France was too big, too powerful. To pick a threat, the Revolution had made that threat seem even more dangerous, and it also provided an excuse for military action. Combined with France's fiscal crisis and political instability, it seemed like the perfect moment to finally neutralize the threat. No wonder so many countries seized it. Everyone knew going in that the French army had been weakened by the desertion of so many officers. But it was impossible to know exactly how severe the problem was until the army was tested on the battlefield. Once hostilities began, the results were very uneven. In some theaters, the army actually performed pretty well. In northern Italy and along the Rhine and Alsace, the French actually pushed into enemy territory. But the primary theater of the war was going to be in the Low Countries and northeastern France. The coalition gathered its main force in modern-day Belgium, made up of Austrians, Prussians, men from the minor German states, and French royalist émigrés. This army was led by the Duke of Brunswick, a German nobleman who had distinguished himself as a general during the wars of Frederick the Great. He was getting old, but still considered one of the best commanders in Europe. The plan was the same one used by other Germans who dreamed of conquering France swoop in from Belgium and seize Paris, forcing the French to surrender. The French army of 1792 may have performed okay in secondary theaters, but against this main force of the coalition, they were a disaster. Some units broke and ran immediately upon coming into contact with Brunswick's army. Others put up a short, token resistance before surrendering. A few regiments defected en masse and joined the émigrés. Brunswick brushed aside the French armies guarding the border and marched on Paris. Fortunately for the revolutionaries, he was a cautious commander. He didn't want to risk getting cut off by moving too quickly into enemy territory. The coalition advance was slow and methodical, but ominously steady. The towns and fortresses along the road to Paris fell without much of a fight. It seemed nothing could stop Brunswick. By July of 1792, Parisians were beginning to panic. The fortress at Longueville, the last remaining major fortification on the road from Belgium, surrendered to the coalition without a fight. The enemy was preparing for a final push on the city. Something had to be done. As things stood, France was utterly incapable of even slowing Brunswick down. The revolutionary government needed to rethink its entire war effort, if it hoped to survive. On July 11th, the assembly took drastic action, releasing a document known as the Declaration of the Fatherland in Danger. This was one of the most significant documents to emerge from the French Revolution, arguably from the entire 18th century. It's short by the standards of legislation, but a bit long by the standards of podcast quotation. But I think it's worth reading. Quote, An Address to the French People Your constitution rests on the principles of eternal justice. A League of Kings has been formed in order to destroy it. Their battalions are advancing. They are numerous, subject to rigorous discipline, and trained long ago in the art of war. Do you not feel a noble passion arousing your courage? Would you allow foreign hordes to spread like a torrent over your countryside, to ravage your harvest, to devastate our fatherland through fire and murder, in a word, to fetter you with chains dyed in the blood of that which you hold most dear? Our armies are still not close to full strength. An imprudent sense of security moderated the spirit of patriotism too early. The recruitment which was ordered did not have as much success as your representatives had hoped. Interior agitation increases the difficulty of our position. Our enemies indulge in foolish hopes which are an outrage against you. Make haste, citizens. Save liberty and avenge your glory. The National Assembly declares that the Fatherland is in danger. You swore the oath to live freely or to die. We know that you will keep it, and swear to be an example to you in this. But it is not a question of braving death. We must conquer. And you can do it if you renounce your hatreds, if you forget your political differences, if you all rally to the common cause, if you keep watch with untiring activity over the enemies within, if you avoid all the disturbances and the individual violence that begets them, if you fly to the borders and into your camps, with the generous enthusiasm of liberty and the profound sentiment of the duties of citizen-soldiers. Men of France, who for the last four years have struggled against despotism, we warn you of the dangers assailing you in order to invite you to make the efforts necessary to surmount them. We are showing you the precipice. What glory awaits you when you have crossed over it? Nations contemplate you. Surprise them with the majestic display of your force, and of your great traits, unity, respect for the law, and unshakable courage. And soon, victory will crown the altar of liberty with its palm. End quote.
0: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
1: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The ideas expressed there were unprecedented in European history. A state had never declared national emergency before pre-revolutionary states didn't belong to any nation, they were just the property of some monarch. The revolutionaries believed the country and the government belonged to the people, and so they believed the people had an interest and a duty to defend it when it faced existential threat. The old monarchies asked their subjects to fight for money, or just because they were down and out and had no other option, or even tricked them into joining the military. Revolutionary France was asking its citizens to fight out of patriotism and to defend their new rights and freedoms. A few weeks later, the sentiments in that declaration were given the weight of law in a piece of legislation called the levée en masse. Under the old regime, the levée was a system for picking men from militia service. If you're American, imagine getting a summons for jury duty, but instead of going to the courthouse, you had to join the National Guard. But this was different. They wouldn't be picking men at random. En masse means it applies to everyone. As the law reads, quote, Henceforth, until the enemies have been driven from the territory of the Republic, the French people are in permanent requisition for army service. The young men shall go to battle. The married men shall forge arms and transport supplies. The women shall make tents and clothes, and shall serve in the hospitals. The children shall turn old linen into lint. The old men shall retire to public places, to stimulate the courage of the warriors, and preach the unity of the Republic and the hatred of kings. End quote. This was the first use of mass conscription in history. Obviously, there was a little hyperbole there. No one from the government was actually going to draft old people into service doing political rants in the town square, and there were a minimum of able-bodied adults who were left out of the war effort to keep a bare-bones civilian economy running. But in broad strokes, the government really meant what it said. For the first time in human history, a country would attempt to fight total war. mobilize their entire society towards the goal of victory on the battlefield. With France under attack from all sides and the enemy advancing on Paris, it's obvious the levée en masse was mostly born out of necessity, an act of desperation. But it's important to keep in mind that it wouldn't have been possible without those ideas expressed in the Declaration of the Fatherland in Danger if one of those old-fashioned monarchies had been in France's shoes, this simply wouldn't have been an option. Even if it occurred to them to try, they just didn't have that type of relationship with their subjects. Not yet, anyway. I think you can sense the panic in both documents. The men who wrote them were facing the prospect of execution for treason, and of seeing all their hopeful work come crashing down and replaced by the hated old regime. The concepts of mass conscription and total war were totally untested. This was an act of desperation, a Hail Mary. But it actually worked. After the declaration of the fatherland in danger, thousands of new recruits joined the regular army. National Guard units from all over the country came streaming into Paris to volunteer for frontline service. After the levée en masse, tens of thousands of young men dutifully reported to their local barracks. Sure, they were just complying with the new law, but there was no enforcement yet. No one was dragging them. They understood the gravity of the situation, and they wanted to fight. In the city of Strasbourg, Near the front lines on the Rhine, a young revolutionary wrote a song that captured the mood of the moment. Quote, Arise, children of the fatherland, the day of glory has arrived. Against us, tyranny's bloody banner is raised. Do you hear in the countryside the roar of those ferocious soldiers? They're coming right into your arms, to cut the throats of your sons, your wives. To arms, citizens. End quote. The song was originally titled War Song for the Army of the Rhine, but we know it by a much catchier title, the Marseillaise. You could be forgiven for thinking this all sounds like a bit of a bad idea, a lot of flowery words and misplaced idealism born out of desperation. Think back to our discussion of 18th century militaries from episode 6, The King's Army. It took months of relentless training and brutal punishment to break a man down, then build him back up into a soldier, sometimes even years. It wasn't enthusiasm or commitment that made a good soldier, it was discipline. The old absolute monarchies didn't really care where their men came from or why they fought, only that they followed orders and held the line. Frederick the Great was considered the best war leader of the age. Almost all the generals of the pre revolutionary era considered him their role model, and over half the men in his army weren't even native Prussians. And that's just the way he wanted it. As Frederick put it, quote, in wartime, recruits should be levied in one's own country only when bitterest necessity compels. Quote. Well, with Brunswick's undefeated army only a few weeks' march from Paris, you certainly couldn't dispute that France was faced with a bitter necessity. However, there were some who believed Frederick was wrong, that drafting a large number of native-born soldiers shouldn't just be some desperate last resort, that it was actually preferable to the typical 18th century army. The most prominent of these dissenters, and the most important to our story, was an aristocratic French general. Count Jacques Antoine Hippolyte de Guibert. In 1770, he published a text called A General Essay on Tactics, expounding on these ideas. Guibert's essay made such a huge splash that it was actually a hit among the general public, not just in military circles. However, his theories were not really put into practice. Guibert was considered too radical, even in the pro reform climate in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War. But he would go on to be very influential after his death. Napoleon was a fan. So was Lazare Carnot, that brilliant young officer I've mentioned a few times now who would go on to be Minister of War for much of the Revolutionary period. Like so many thinkers of his era, Guibert's theories came from his reading of Roman history. In Rome's Golden Age, military service was tied to citizenship a sacred duty that was tied together with all the other civil rights and obligations of Roman citizens. Guibert believed this was the secret to Rome's battlefield success, and that armies built along that principle would be stronger than armies who fought for money or out of fear. Now, Guibert was no starry-eyed idealist. He could see that no existing state in 1770 had the type of relationship with its subjects in which it could expect to raise an army of Roman-style citizen-soldiers overnight. So, he advocated social and political reforms to build that type of relationship. I think that's fascinating. In today's political and intellectual climate, you don't really hear arguments for progressive reform built around the goal of creating a more powerful military. Guibert believed this theoretical national army could completely upend the European geopolitical order and change warfare forever. From his essay, quote, Supposing that a people would arise in Europe, vigorous in spirit, in government, and in the means at their disposal, a people who, with hardy qualities, would form a national army and a settled plan of aggrandizement. We would see such a people subjugate their neighbors and overwhelm our weak constitutions like the north wind bending reeds. Quote. So what exactly did Guibert and people like him think made these citizen-soldiers so great? It wasn't just showing more heart on the battlefield. It was actually all about mobility. 18th century armies were slow, and I mean incredibly slow, like it would not be unusual to march fewer than 10 miles or 16 kilometers in a day. They were slow on the battlefield, too. A general in the Seven Years' War might spend hours just getting his troops arranged on the field before actually engaging the enemy. We talked about this a lot in episode 6, Armies were so slow because the way they moved was designed to maintain discipline and reduce desertion, not to maximize speed. Guibert believed desertion and misbehavior would not be as big a problem for an army made up of citizen soldiers. If the men believed in the cause and felt a duty to protect their country, They could police themselves instead of needing constant supervision, which would leave the officers free to worry about getting the army where it needed to be as fast as possible, instead of babysitting. In his own experiences in the Seven Years' War, Guibert saw that the difference between victory and defeat often came down to speed. The faster army could seize a strategic position before the other side could reach it, surprise the enemy by attacking where they weren't expected and pounce on isolated enemy units before reinforcements could arrive. He also believed citizen-soldiers would be capable of new things on the battlefield. 18th-century armies drilled their men to ignore their instincts and behave like automatons. Officers were taught to behave the same way to their superiors. Each man in the army was thought of by his immediate commanding officer as an inert tool nothing more than a piece on a chessboard. Guibert and men like him believed this was all wrong. They thought warfare of the future required motivated, empowered men who would be able to assess the situation on the battlefield themselves and act accordingly, on their own initiative, without waiting for orders and without supervision. That sounds pretty good, but think of the type of men they were recruiting into 18th century armies petty criminals, drunks, mercenaries, and vagabonds. It was a lot easier to simply beat them into submission with some Prussian-style discipline than to somehow instill them with the desire to defend the state. Guibert's concept of the citizen-soldier got around this problem. He believed good government could create the type of state its soldiers would want to defend. When the Bastille fell in 1789, Guibert was languishing in a minor command out in the provinces. This had been the army high command's way of showing him they did not approve of all these crazy new ideas. The new revolutionary government summoned him to Paris. Those Enlightenment liberals in the assembly still remembered that essay and wanted him to take on some larger role. But unfortunately, Guibert died suddenly shortly after arriving. If he'd lived only a few more years not only would Guibert have seen his ideas put into practice, he would have found himself completely vindicated. The radical political changes swept in by the revolution had created the type of state he'd envisioned in his writing, a state capable of asking for huge sacrifices from the population and of raising massive armies of citizen-soldiers. Just as Guibert predicted, these armies were fast, three or even four times faster than the armies of the old regime. And the qualities of the citizen soldier did open up all kinds of possibilities for new strategies and battlefield tactics. In time, Guibert's prediction that such armies would push over the old regimes of Europe like the north wind bending reeds would come true as well. The Levée en masse might have been born out of desperation, but it laid the groundwork for an incredibly effective new army. As they say, necessity is the mother of invention and the revolution had created a new type of soldier. By the mid-1790s, the French army had gone from dangerously weak to one of the strongest in world history. In time, their opponents would learn to copy their methods, but for the better part of a decade, the citizen-soldiers of the revolution would run roughshod over Europe, completely destroying the old order in the process. Something else might have jumped out at you from the text of the Levee en masse, the word republic. Mass conscription wasn't the only significant political development of mid-1792. The story of the foundation of the First French Republic is closely tied to these military and diplomatic developments we've been talking about. The approaching coalition army terrified Parisians their worst fears were confirmed in late july brunswick released a manifesto threatening to burn the city to the ground at exact vengeance on the population if king louis or his family were harmed if brunswick's goal really was to ensure the safety of the royal family he could not have picked a worse way to do it his manifesto linked the king and the coalition in the minds of the population made it look like they were on the same side which, in fact, they were, but until now that fact had been very carefully hidden from the public.
2: The mask had slipped. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, We explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavours, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit ancient Egypt, and experience a legendary culture.
1: If they could, the masses of Paris probably would have preferred to take out their fear and anger on the people who caused it, Brunswick and his army. All those young men who rallied to join the army were preparing to do just that. But in the meantime, there was another target, much closer to home and much more vulnerable. Someone who Brunswick's poorly conceived manifesto had explicitly linked to the cause of the coalition, King Louis. All that fear finally boiled over on August the 10th. There was another insurrection in Paris sometimes referred to as the Second French Revolution. Bolstered by those patriotic National Guard units, the poor people of Paris stormed the royal palace and massacred the king's guard. The royal family escaped and sought sanctuary with the assembly. Many conservative representatives fled Paris, so with only the moderate and radical members left, the assembly quickly voted to imprison the king. France's political world had turned again, and once again everything had shifted in a more radical direction. But France was still technically a monarchy. Voices calling for a republic grew louder, but with Brunswick's threats hanging over the government, the time did not seem right. In September, the revolutionaries got one last chance to stop Brunswick in the field before he reached Paris. Two small French armies, under Generals François Kellerman and Charles Dumouriez managed to link up and slip behind the coalition army. They took up a good position on a wide ridge, right on the road back to Belgium, at a place called Valmy. Brunswick's worst fears were realized. He was cut off. That road was his only line of communication and resupply. He had no choice but to turn around and try to clear it before he could continue his advance. The coalition troops were tired. It was pouring rain. They had been marching almost non-stop since spring. Half of the army was suffering from dysentery. They had marched through an orchard on the way to the battlefield, and eating those apples had turned out to be a mistake. But it was already late September. Since armies didn't campaign in cold weather, this would almost certainly be the last engagement of the year. Once they dealt with Kellermann and de it would only be a few more weeks before they could pass a comfortable winter in Paris. That is, assuming everything went according to plan. Like many 18th century battles, the Battle of Valmy started out with an artillery duel. Each side's cannons tried to knock each other out from long range, to give themselves an advantage once the battle started in earnest. In some of the engagements of 1792, the French had actually started to flee at this early stage. But this time, it was different. The French artillery actually gained the upper hand. Remember, they had those new Gribeval guns, and French crews trained harder and had better doctrine than anyone in Europe. When the army actually stayed put long enough for them to do their work, the results were devastating. Surprised, Brunswick had no choice but to order his infantry to assault the ridge and take out those cannon the hard way. The Prussian contingent led the attack. Prussian soldiers had the best reputation in Europe. This was Frederick the Great's army, legendary for its discipline. But they were worn out, sick, and advancing uphill against heavy artillery fire. The assault slowed, then wavered. At that key moment, General Kellermann stepped forward from the French line, looked back at his men, and shouted, Long live the nation! The French troops went wild. They cheered and sang La Marseillaise. The Prussians stopped dead. Brunswick realized there would be no easy victory that day, that his army didn't have the stomach for the type of fierce, hard fighting it would take to clear the French off that ridge, so he ordered the Prussians to fall back. But he couldn't just leave an enemy army in his rear and continue the advance on Paris. So, where could the coalition army go to make its winter quarters? The only feasible option was to detour around the ridge at Valmy and return to Belgium, giving up all the gains of the year's campaign. It sounds like a disaster, but Brunswick wasn't concerned. Other than the minor setback at Valmy, his march on Paris had been a cakewalk. He'd hardly lost a man. How much harder could it be to just do it again in 1793? Next time they'd know not to eat the bad apples. But Brunswick could not have been more wrong. It would be 22 years before an enemy army got that close to Paris again. When news of the battle reached the city, Parisians greeted it with jubilation. Inspired by a new sense of confidence, The very next day, the assembly voted to abolish the monarchy and declared France a republic. Valmy was a turning point, both militarily and politically. But Paris and the revolution hadn't been permanently secured. This was just a momentary reprieve. The War of the First Coalition would last five more years. Revolutionary France had weathered its first existential crisis. But there would be more to come. Throughout the tumultuous years ahead, the New Republic would come to rely on this people's army that was born out of these desperate days of 1792. As we'll see, in many ways, this army would come to embody the revolution, so much so that it would eventually seem quite natural for a soldier to take the reins of power. But in podcast terms, that's still far, far in the future. Next time, we'll be returning the focus to Napoleon. We'll take a look at some more Corsican political antics, get Napoleon's take on some of the events we discussed today, and then see him finally join the fight to defend the revolution. Until then, thanks for listening.